Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from KQQ Radio, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalai. It's a good afternoon. Delighted to be here as we kick off another episode the Ask Noah show this hour. Again, uh, oh, okay, there we go. Uh, yeah, again, phone lines are open, 1-855-450-6624. Uh, one of the exciting things about my day job is that it dovetails, I think, rather nicely into this show. And so I get the opportunity to play with some really cool technology, and I get the opportunity to work on some really cool problems and solve those problems. And do it with Linux and open source technology. And implement some Linux. In this past week, I was handed a really interesting problem. A large-scale problem that I really had not had a lot of experience solving. It's certainly not to that scale. And I know that this is going to apply to at least a few of you in the audience. And let me explain why. Because... Coming up next week, we are celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Ask Noah Show. And as we mentioned in a previous episode, we started on Mondays, and because we changed to Tuesdays, April 3rd, the day we first went on the air, is going to be our one-year anniversary episode again. And uh, more information coming up about a uh, a dinner and a celebration that we're going to have in the Minneapolis area. That's coming up towards the end of the hour. But over that year... One of the calls that we've taken over and over and over again are people asking for digital signage solutions. And there have been a number of different software packages that we've tried, a number of different software things that we've actually put into production that we've set them up and used for clients and we worked well enough. But this week we were working with a client who threw a curveball at us. They're an advertising company and they needed... Uh, digital signage to work in a centrally managed office, but they wanted to be able, needed to be able to put the displays, the actual digital signs in multiple locations all over the place. And there are a number of reasons why that would be advantageous. Now, in the case of the advertising company, let's say you have the men's restroom. Let's say you have the, um, I'm trying to think where else these things exist. Um, Let's say you have like in the entryway of a business and they sell a package. They say, we will uh, we'll come, we'll install the equipment for you and we'll put this in and you can run specials for your restaurant or whatever it is, right? And uh, instead of the old little glass boards that they put up in front of the men's urinal, they have these digital displays. But they need a way to manage those. They need a way to update those ads. Now, it's simply not practical to put a bunch of on-site controllers to go out and update all of these things, which is the way that for a long time, digital signage works. Then some of the solutions that we've given out on this program have been solutions that are self-hosted inside of a simple box that is hosted on-premise, works over the LAN, or maybe even you manage the sign directly. There is no central management software. We've recommended both. And this week we have found a new solution to have a central management system that you can put to these signs. You can put these signs anywhere as long as they have internet access. And it'll automatically update more about that as the show goes on. But as always, your calls go to the front of the line. Kyle is calling from Minneapolis. Oh, oops. Uh, There we go. Kyle's calling from Minneapolis. Hey, Kyle, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how are you doing? Excellent. How are you? Before you get to your question, I have to ask, are, uh, are you coming to the meetup next week? Yeah, I've been hitting you up a couple times in our Telegram group. Great. Outstanding. So, yeah, so then you, you have the details. I'm going to save, I guess, the announcement for later on this week, but just want to make sure that uh, everyone is aware of that. Uh, go ahead with your question, Kyle. 
Yeah, um, I've got a couple of my family members running Ubuntu Mate on their laptops, and they're running 1510 right now, and I'm going to upgrade them all to 1804 once that comes out. And on my on one of the laptops, I've got it pretty customized with um, desktop icons set up just how it needs to be and uh, some custom launchers going to some specific software just how it needs to be. And I'm wondering, what is the surefire way to upgrade that so it looks and acts just like how it did in 1510? I know kind of the nuke and pave is a recommended way of approaching that, but I know um, you guys have talked about using like KDE Neon and stuff and having everything set up just how you want it and then having that work on every machine that you install it on. And I'm wondering if there's a similar way of doing that for uh, Ubuntu Mate. Um, well, the short answer, I suppose, is yes. 90% of the configuration that occurs on any Linux desktop environment, Mate included, happens in the home directory. So, for example, the shortcuts on the desktop, the Firefox bookmarks, the Thunderbird profile, which contains all the configuration, saved usernames, passwords, the address book, all of that stuff is stored in the user's home directory. So if you were to bat and for every user, I might add. So if you had four users in a family and they all had different wallpapers and they all had different, um, you know, various different settings, whatever it is, different, uh, different customizations, add-ons in Firefox, different customizations, add-ons, themes, whatever in Thunderbird customizations with Quasal, whatever it is, all of that stuff would be backed up just by backing up the home directory itself. And so, and there are people that do this, they will, when they install the system, some people will even put a separate entire hard drive just for their home directory so that they can nuke and pave or upgrade or whatever to the operating system and their little land of sanity, their little land of safety remains without any sort of, without, without really having to do anything. Now, KDE takes almost kind of one step further because there is, there are some config things that you can fancy little config things that you can do and there are some fancy ways to use git to back those up and, and restore those but the, the vast majority of changes that you're going to see probably are occurring just inside of the home directory okay so if i use something like rsync or some other method to like back up their home directory if i do a fresh install and it creates a new user's home directory and everything um can I just delete the new directory that it's created for them and then put on their old home directory? Or how would you recommend doing that? The, yeah, there's a couple different ways you could do it. So one of the way, one of the things I'm using, I'm actually using C file to back up, to, to do some of that. So that's one thing you could use. Rsync is a great uh, tool for, for backing up the thing. The difference between Rsync and C file is C file is instantaneous. Rsync takes a little bit. So what where you have to, you know, you'd have to schedule it to run every so often. The thing about C file is like if I have if I create a new shortcut on a desktop and I have four different machines that are that are syncing that home directory around, um, what'll happen is when as soon as I create the shortcut, it's instantaneously available on all, all four of those other machines. So there's an advantage to doing that. I'll, I'll tell you one other way that we've done it. Now this doesn't work so well in a home environment, but it works great in a corporate environment. Any of you Windows admins out there, you guys might be familiar with something called profile redirection. And profile redirection is the Windows equivalent of of syncing the home directory around, I guess you could call it. Basically, in Windows, you also have a folder that contains all the user's settings and documents and um, links to things and customizations, all that jazz, including all the icons and files that they have on their desktop. And there is a way in Windows to tell Windows, don't actually, when the user saves something to the desktop, don't actually save it to the desktop. The desktop and this entire user's you know, sacred space actually lives inside of a Windows Samba share. And so anytime the user saves something to the quote unquote desktop, which users are just, they just naturally do, even if you tell them not to, you tell them, save it on the you know public drive on the server. They don't, they save it on the desktop. And then something bad happens to the desktop and the desktop blows up, then what do you do? Then that user is more or less host. Well, with profile redirection, when you install a new system, you again enable a profile redirection and it starts using the users, I'll call it the home directory, since we're talking in Linux terms here, puts that home directory back on the Linux or the the, uh, the Windows user's computer and all of their icons just magically appear. 
as if nothing bad had happened. And you can do the same thing in Linux. We have done the same thing in Linux uh, using NFS. So we'll take the home directory and we'll store the home directory on an NFS share and mount that NFS share when the computer boots. And so essentially what you wind up with is the, you know, if you have a, a corporate environment of, you know, 500 computers and all 500 of those computers start up, every one of those home directories is actually sitting on a FreeNAS server. And so the user's computer boots up and if they save something into their downloads folder or their documents folder or something like that, they're not, it's not actually on their machine. It's actually on a server somewhere that's, that's being backed up and is utilizing ZFS and all those fancy things. So the desktop just becomes like a, a conduit, so to speak. And sorry to go off on a tangent because I'm guessing that's not going to apply in your case because it's a home user, right? Correct, yeah. Okay. So one of the other things that I want to do is I want to bring our mumble room up. We are in a mumble room. I want to bring our mumble room up. Uh, is it uh, Mimixy? Yes, Minimac. Hey. So there are a lot of changes first from 5010 to 8004. First of all is 5010 is end of life, so you need a fresh install. And there are such a lot of changes that I would not copy the entire home directory, but only the files and start with a new configuration format. So does that make sense? Does that make sense to you, Gal? Yeah, yeah, I was just, <laughs> I should have upgraded it earlier before, uh, you know, the big point release. Right. But I kind of fell behind because I don't see them that often and everything. And I was hoping to prevent that whole nuke and pave option because there are some things that are set up custom and it's been a long time since I've done it. <laughs> it would take me a while to figure it out again, but... If that's what I got to do, that's what I got to do, I guess. Yeah, and I'll, I'll level with you. I am not a huge fan of um, the non-LTS point releases for exactly this reason. Because if you were on, if you had called me up and you said, I'm on 1604 or 1404 even, I could, I could tell you, I don't know that I necessarily would, but I could tell you, just hang on. Just, you got it for five years. Don't worry about it today. Uh, hold on for a little bit. You'll be fine. You'll get security patches, stuff like that. When you're at 1510, there are so many fundamental things that stop working after that after that that non LTS cycle ends. I'll give you a recent example. I have really started to embrace snap packages because I believe that snap packages are the future of the Linux desktop, and I believe snap packages are the way forward for the Linux desktop. And um, one of the things that has always been a pain in the rear has been Minecraft. And my kids really like Minecraft. Now, you can download Minecraft, you can download the jar, and you can drop to the terminal and run Java, blah, 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 and it, it runs easily enough, right? But my kids don't want to do that. My kids want to have an icon on the, uh, on the little bar that they click on and, and it launches. Now, there's a way to manually create the icon and stuff like that. And I've, after doing it enough times, I've, I've gotten pretty proficient at it. But I always had my little... Uh, my little doc inside of our company knowledge base on how to, how to, how to do it, you know, and I, you know, and they, they use different desktop environments. So for example, at home, they have my, both my kids are on, on unity. Now one is on KDE at the office though. Um, it's uh, it's a mix between unity and uh, Mate. And so if they sit down at one of our work computers, a lot of times they'll say, Dad, can I jump on a computer and, and play Minecraft? They sign in. They have their own account on our office computers. They sign in. They, they, and I, so I have to create the icon there. So I had, had to start becoming proficient with creating the, you know, this icon and stuff like that on all these computers. Well, Snap Packages changed all of that because now doesn't matter what desktop environment I'm on. I literally just type Snap install Minecraft and a Minecraft icon just appears and it just works. And that's fantastic. It is so cool. And that is exactly what Snap is designed to do. Now, if I was on a non-supported uh, point release, I wouldn't be able to use Snap packages. But I was on a 1404 box uh, yesterday. It was my it's my gaming machine that I have that I boot up you know once a month because I'm a big gamer, you know. And I boot this thing up and I go to install Minecraft on it. It's 1404. I'm like, hey, guess what? It's LTS. Sudo you know inst uh, sudo apt get install Snap D and Snap install Minecraft and away we went. So I try and stay all that to say, I try and stay away from the point releases. I try to stick to the LTSs and stuff like that when I can. And uh, I, I, the, the answer to your question of how to do it is to back up the home directory. The question of, is it a great idea in this, in your particular case, given your particular version set? I don't know. I might, uh, I might clone Zilda the computer and try it and see what bad things happen. 
And uh, if too many things break, then maybe go back. But man, I got to tell you, when you have, especially if you have inexperienced users trying to get everything reset up the exact same way, that can be a frustrating. <laughs> Sometimes that can be more frustrating than, than, than people give it credit for. John is calling from California. Hey, John, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hello again, Noah. Hey, how we doing? Hey, a, a while ago on the Ask Noah show, when you were asked a question on cabling in the house, mm-hmm. you talked about running fiber cables in the house instead of Ethernet. Yes, sir. Would you talk a little more about that and the benefits of it? Yeah, absolutely. So when, you, uh, when you're going to um, cable a house, so to speak, uh, there's a couple of things that you look at. My first recommendation, anytime I'm sitting down with a potential client or a client and they say, we want to build a house or we want to retrofit our house, what do you recommend from a structure wiring standpoint? A couple of things I always recommend. One, absolutely 100% always run networking cable to all of the locations that you're going to have TVs. I have seen demos. I don't know that any of them are on at market, but I have seen demos at CES and other places where they have TVs that bring in all of the content over Ethernet and even can power over Ethernet. And I believe in five to Ooh. 10 years, we are not going to have AC-powered TVs. We're certainly not going to have coax running to the TVs. It's all going to be over the Internet. So I run, I w- in fact, I don't run, run one, I run two uh, Ethernet pairs to every single TV in the entire house. The second thing is I run Ethernet to every single room in the entire house. And if you can afford it, and it, like if you're just building the house, because Cat5 is cheap or Cat6 is cheap, run to every single wall two pairs and every single wall in the entire house that is not overkill and it it's i mean cat six is like i think two cents a foot or three cents a foot i mean it's just it's just pennies it's going to cost more for the electrician's time to pull the wire than it will for the actual wire itself so if you can get away with it two pairs of ethernet in every single wall in the entire house third tip i always give people run eight run two two inch conduit pipes from your Network room, control center, laundry room, whatever you want to call electrical room, whatever you're calling it downstairs where the central hub is of all the wiring, run two two-inch conduit pipes all the way up into the attic. If you're in a house and you're retrofitting a house like I am, there is something called Smurf tube. And Smurf tube is basically, it's, it's wire conduit, but it's flexible wire conduit. And so you can maneuver it inside of the walls and you can get access from your basement where all of your stuff is or the you know the lowest level or where like I said wherever your wiring room is up into the attic. The reason for that is there are two ways to get wire yeah. in a house once the walls are put up. The first way is you can fish wire from the basement, you can go up into the walls. The second way is you can come down from the attic. But if you don't have a way to get from the basement to the attic to begin with, you're completely hosed. So for those reasons, I always say put conduit. And that conduit, by the way, should be in addition to any of the wire that you're running with the walls open. So th- that's just a preamble to get to where, where we are. So, so now, okay, so we have, we, we've done that or we decided not to do that, whatever. What do we do specifically? Uh, what are the advantages to fiber? Why would you run it? How do you run it? Converting photons to electrons is expensive. Converting, converting electrons to photons is expensive. And if you can figure out how to do that uh, free or cheaply, you'll be the first world's first trillionaire. When when we look at running fiber, the advantage is fiber is, for all intents and purposes, almost limitless. It's the speed of light. It's 300 million meters per second. So it's very, very, very fast. We You'll never out... I don't think we'll ever outgrow the speed of fiber. What we may outgrow is the little converters at the end that convert the photons to electrons or the electrons back to photons. The nice thing about fiber is you can continually... Re- just replace those transceivers on either end and you instantly get upgraded speed. Now, there was a time when fiber was really expensive and so we didn't want to run it. But these days, I mean, you can get a ro- you can get 250 feet of fiber for like a couple hundred bucks. I mean, it's just not that expensive. Now, it's all terminated fiber. So you want to have, you know, one inch holes inside of the if you have I-beams in your house or if you've got, um, you know, uh, uh, regular header bar headers, you, you, want, you have to drill through them. And you want to make the hole big enough to, to, to fit the terminated fiber through. But the nice thing is you can run a fiber link from your control point to your wire rack or your wire center, whatever you want to call it, all the way over to wherever the wherever something is that you need high speed access. So I'll give you a couple examples. One example would be in my house, for example, I have a video editing workstation and I have a NAS that I edit off of and I have a, a, a fiber link 
a 10 gig fiber link from the NAS over to my video editing workstation. And the reason for that is I can edit video reliably off of the NAS with that 10 gig fiber link. And it's much cheaper for me to up and more efficient for me to upgrade the storage in the NAS than it is for me to have a whole separate storage system inside of the computer. When you're working with uncompressed yeah. video video files, I'm sometimes dealing with a couple of terabytes just for for an hour of 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 produced foot uh, produced uh, video. The second thing you might want to do is you might actually want to break off your network into segments. So let's say, for example, you have a, a larger house, and you have your we'll call it the network operation center where all the wires are, but maybe you have a gaming room or you have a media room or something like that you can put a switch inside of your network center and a switch inside of your media room or your gaming room or whatever, and you can put SFP fiber transceivers inside of those switches and have a 10-gig link to and from uh, between those two switches. Because it, uh, the, the problem is everyone says, well, why would I want a 10-gig link? Because if I have gigabit, isn't that fast enough? You have to understand, the gigabit, if you have two gigabit switches and they're each 24-port switches you have one gigabyte to split between 24 different clients. So you're getting one 24th of a gigabit if all of those clients are trying, if all, everything plugged into that switch is trying to push maximum throughput. Because at the end of the day, the uplink port is presumably one gigabit. Now there are ways to do 10 gigabit with, with copper. So I'm not saying you have, I'm not saying you have to, but my, I guess my point is by running fiber, you kind of future-proof yourself because you, again, if, 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 yeah, if to, yeah, right. If tomorrow the, the limit is changed, you just change the transceivers, swap those SFP transceivers, and you're, you're good to go. Or if you have fiber cards in the back of your computer, yeah. something like that. I have a, I have a CAT uh, TV, a CATV receiver in my Lemur 76 laptop. I was wondering, is that a fiber connection? Is that a fiber port? Say that, run that by me one more time. I'm sorry. Uh, it's called... C-A-T-V. Is that a fiber port? C-A-T-V. I guess I'm not familiar with that. What is it? Does it look like a Cat5 jack, or does it look like a... Does it have a little red glowing light? Um, it's basically a little... It's basically a little circle with a... Uh, with a little... With a port ahead. I, I'm actually having trouble getting it off, but it comes down... But you can just look uh, on the Lemuron System 76 page for it. it. They still have the same model. Oh, okay. This, th I'm sorry, I, I missed that part. So this is on a laptop? Yeah. Yeah, I can almost guarantee you there is no laptop that has a fiber port on the laptop. I, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't say that definitively. I just, who knows? I mean, System76, they're doing cool things. But I, I would, I, I'll give you a 9 to 1 chance there is no fiber port on that on that laptop. There's It just, that you can't even, I mean... As far as I know, there aren't even many places you can order a desktop. I mean, you pretty much have to custom order that stuff and say, like, I specifically want a fiber card inside of the desktop. Most of the time, you're you're not running fiber to the actual workstations. In fact, to be honest with you, John, it's probably overkill for me to run a 10 gig link to my video editing workstation. I could probably get away with having a 10 gig link to a switch and then a one gig link uh, to the to the actual computer. I haven't tried the theory, and like you said, fiber was cheap enough. I just ran it. Those of you that are asking in the in the chat room, dual channel, um, not single channel fiber. Um, but yeah, the the, the um, for for me, it's just it's a matter of future proof, and uh, and fiber allows me to do that. It's the same reason. Just while we're on the topic of structured wiring, it's the same reason of why wait, I never ever ever put HDMI cables inside of the wall. I don't believe in it. There's a lot of people they'll say like they're putting in a home theater projector or they're putting in a, they're mounting a TV in their office or they are, um, you know, even even a, a real common scenario for us is you'll have people that will have like direct TV or they will have, uh, you know, um, some even cable TV now has this. They have those little receivers that you have to use. And so what we'll do is I think it's ugly to have all of these receivers uh, underneath the TV and um that, this even goes for for uh, internet or network media players. I just think it looks weird to have all of this stuff and all of these cables and have fifteen different remotes underneath the TV. I, the only thing I need I should have to interact with is the remote in my hand and the TV in front of my face. And so what we do is we put the TV on the wall and we connect the power and HDMI to the back of the TV and everything else. All of the peripherals, all of the sources, all of the amplifiers, everything else goes in the basement where nobody has to look at it. And it can be rack mounted. 
And so if you have a direct TV uh, system, you have the receiver is in the basement, one for each TV. And then we use RF remotes that are paired to a IR blaster that's sitting downstairs with that, you know, direct TV receiver. And so as far as the user is concerned, they push a button and the TV comes on and that remote is controlling that receiver that's downstairs via RF. So they don't have to point it in any magical direction. It just works. And then they can change the channels and they can, uh, they can use the TV, but the only thing they, they never actually see the receiver. They never actually see the network media player. They never see the Xbox, the PlayStation, whatever. It's all away somewhere. Now, in the case of the game consoles, obviously, there's a limit to the wireless controllers, so sometimes you have to be a little bit more creative, put those in a closet somewhere near. But the, the point in saying that is uh, we have to get HDMI signals from these media sources up to the TVs, and I hate running HDMI inside of walls. One, there's a, there's a, a um, length limitation, which is frustrating. Two, it's difficult, if not impossible, to terminate HDMI ends, uh, so those are a pain. And so what we use is we actually use HDMI balance. And basically, it's a little device that that uh, it doesn't encode, really. It just it changes an HDMI cable into a regular Cat6 cable. And so you can run a Cat6 pair. Again, like I said, every TV has a, has a you know, pair of Cat6. So if, if we wired your house, it's already there. But what we do is then we put this, these HDMI balance in on each end. And... The advantage to that is when the new spec for HDMI comes out, the people that we did that for with HDMI 1, when HDMI 2 came out, we just upgraded those balance and voila, you're at the new standard. And then 3 comes out and upgrade those balance, voila, you're at 3. And whatever the next thing is, or 4K or what, it doesn't matter. We'll just keep upgrading those little trans, those little HDMI uh, transceivers. And I don't know if these are actually still in use. We might have just... I. I, I, I had sent Chris a set of these to use a JB1 for the TV. Now, something somewhere rattling around the back of my head, I think I got upset because we were trying to get something to work and we couldn't get it to work. And I think I eventually just went and like kicked a hole in the wall and shoved the cable through and plugged it into the TV. So we might have actually gone to a regular HDMI cable. But at one time, we had this set up at JB1 so that he could just disconnect it, plug a new Cat5 thing in, and, and it's good to go. And an important thing to note, too, by the way, if you, and I'll have a link for those um, HDMI balance over the uh, over the Ethernet. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But it has a Cat5 cable, Cat6 cable, has a connector. It is not using an IP stack, so don't plug them into a switch. In fact, depending on the brand that you use, you will break them if you plug them into a switch, particularly if it's a PoE switch. Don't plug them into a switch. Not encoding over IP. Not using an IP stack. It's just changing the wires of the HDMI to be sent over the wires of Cat5. Again, open phones, one 450 That's one 450 6624 The email, live at com. Digital signage, that's what we're talking about this hour. There's no need to set up a server or a CMS or enter some sort of user agreement. All you have to do is go to the website PySignage.com. Now, as you might guess, a website called PySignage.com uses a Raspberry Pi. When you create a, an account at PySignage.com, which you can do for free, you get up to three players. Now, they give you instructions where you go to GitHub, you download the Raspberry Pi image, and you flash that onto a SD card. Plug it into the Raspberry Pi, boot the Pi up. The Pi just displays a little number. And you take that little number, you log into your free account that you created at PySignage.com, and you put that number in there. And now that Raspberry Pi player, TV player, has become registered to your account, and you can manage it. Now, from their website, you can upload video files, you can upload images, you can upload, you know, or you can link to a website, a live stream, you can create a playlist and determine how long it's going to play each one of these things. So maybe it plays, maybe I have a digital signage in AltaSpeed Technologies in our lobby, and uh, it shows the price list most of the day. But at six o'clock, when we go on the air, it changes over to our live stream and plays that for an hour. And then after that, it goes and plays um, reruns of TechSnap because those guys are awesome. You can do all of that inside of the Pi Signage website. Now, they the, the advantage to having this kind of system is 
basically any player that is connected to the internet is able to talk to the Pi signage server. Any client that's able to talk to the Pi signage server is able to grab the Airstream, the latest content, which means you can have 10,000 of these things all over the city, all over multiple cities even, in multiple businesses, on multiple walls. And you have one central place, one central office that can manage these sign signs and they can control the content and push the, that new, uh, update the content, change the content. And that content is immediately available on those signs all over the world even. I mean, it just, it literally just needs to be able to access the internet. Now, I know some of you are listening to this and you're like, is he seriously recommending a cloud-based solution? Is he telling me that I have to go create this website or I have to go create this account on this website to use this product that he's talking about? No, no, you don't. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. That is one way to do it. That is what they recommend you do. That is the easiest way to get started because it takes you 35 seconds to flash this card, stick it in the Raspberry Pi, boot the thing up, add it to the website. You're good to go. That's one way to do it. That's the way I did it. But this company uses all open source based software. PySignage.com links you to their GitHub account and you can run your own Pi server for free. And what the free, if you use their hosted solution, obviously you're using their storage, their bandwidth. So they put a limit. You can have three players. That's a pretty reasonable limit. If you have a small business, I'll give you a perfect example about the, uh, of this. Take Jupiter Broadcasting, for example. Linux Fest Northwest is coming up. And uh, one of the things that we have always done at Linux Fest Northwest is there's a TV that sits behind our booth. And we play reruns of the various shows. In order to accomplish that, in the past, we've had to bring a NUC. We've had to load it up with a playlist in VLC. We've had to download all of the previous show the you know update the, the newest shows put this on this you know on this uh, nook bring it in plug it in connect to keyboard and mouse full screen the thing click play on vlc oops somebody forgot to automatically repeat or whatever hook a keyboard back up close out of vlc edit the preferences change all that go back into it oh somebody forgot to turn off the little show the title thing every new episode we go change that it just gets to be frustrating right just to play some some video files with the Raspberry Pi signage, PySignage.com, what you could do is we flash the Raspberry Pi, we add it to the account, done. That's it. Configuration is complete. Don't have to do anything more. Now we can just take that Pi and plug it into the TV. And at Chris's leisure, from anywhere in the world, he can log into PySignage.com, download the couple episodes that he wants to play at Linux Fest Northwest, drop them in the, drop them in the upload them to the PySignage.com thing, create a playlist of them, good to go. Heck, you could even have the live stream play during the times that we're streaming at Linux Fest Northwest, and then when it's not playing, it falls back to reruns. Now, if he wants to update that the next year, he just downloads more episodes, uploads them to the site without ever taking the Raspberry Pi out of the box, and just the next year when you plug that Pi back in, it's going to pull down the new content and immediately start playing it. And this, it was such a slick system and they did such a good job designing it. They did such a good job making it, you know, intuitive without sacrificing a bunch of control. Because I tell you what I find. I find all the time that the most intuitive software, the most intuitive projects, the things that, you know, are really fast to get up and going, you quickly hit some limitations. Well, I want to do this now. Oh, sorry, you can't. Well, I guess they had to do that to keep it simple. I guess they couldn't offer that option. On the same, on the other hand of the spectrum, you look at something like KDE. I'm telling you, there is a there. There are days I look and I'm like, and I wonder if I could. Oh yeah, I can. Oh yeah, that's an option. Yeah, you just click in here and find the right setting thing. Yeah, you can change that. I had a friend of mine. We were talking about um, the cursor speed, and he likes his he likes his mouse to be insanely sensitive. So we maxed out the, he's using Matei, and he maxed out the sensitivity in Matei. It wasn't enough for him. And uh, I went into my control panel in KDE. Man, I can change the sensitivity. I can change the acceleration. I can change the mouse pointers. I mean, you name it, there's a setting for it. There's a, there's a, a uh, you know, an icon or a slider or a button or whatever to change everything. 
And one of the things that PySignage has done very, very well is they have given you more than enough options that it can be infinitely flexible, but you have to dig into the control panel and turn those options on. By default, it literally pops up with a default playlist. You put your content or your links or whatever in there, good to go. And one of the things, and I'll give you an update as we as the show as uh, the show continues, not today, but in a future episode, is my dad owns a clinic, and he is using the Open EMR software. And the Open EMR software has something called the Flow Board, and the Flow Board is basically which patients are in, have checked into the facility and how long they have been waiting, or who's next in line to be seen. And so we're looking at ways can we strip out the you know because they can't have the patient's name up on a on a TV, but can we use some magic scripts underneath and strip out everything but like the first initial and the first three letters of the last name or something like that? So the person we're referring to knows who they are, but nobody else does. And just say estimated wait time is blank. So the person can sit there and go, oh, it's going to be an hour. I'll just run, have a cup of coffee or I'll go have a snack or whatever, come back in an hour. And they can just kind of keep an eye. Oh, he's going to be with me in 10 minutes. I'll just wait. And we're looking at ways that we can tie that into PySignage. Because, of course, when you're working with two open source solutions, the fantastic thing is there's almost always a way to tie that stuff in. So PySignage.com, make sure to check it out. They also offer a service to custom build an open source PySignage server just for you. So if you have some ideas of how you'd like to use PySignage, but the stock open source server doesn't work for you and, and you're not a developer yourself, give them a call because that's one of the services that they offer. And I'm telling you, you know, it's only been a couple of weeks that we've been using these guys. They have done it right. I mean, they really have. They open source the server. They open source the client. They base it on commodity hardware. So it's just a Raspberry Pi. You can buy it anywhere. And the software is rock solid. It works great. By default, it's completely managed. I just sign up for an account and use it. But you have the option to split off and use my own server. It's like the trifecta of, of the perfect way to do an open source project. The, the the problem that you run into with uh, the you know the the Slack stuff right versus Mattermost or whatever, you say well you should use Mattermost it does all the things Slack can. Well yeah but I then have to set up a Mattermost server. Well somebody will do that for you okay but is that person how long is that person going to be around because if there's anything that you know that you learn being in these kinds of situations is that the people that set these stuff up aren't always around forever. And then when those people are gone, then all of a sudden you're, you're up a Creek without a paddle off often. And, and so it, it becomes a problem. So the, uh, you find a lot of people are just using Slack and the advantage to PySignage.com is they are starting with an open source model. They're saying, all right, we're going to make it a complete service, just a click and run service. But if you want to branch it off, if you want to host your own code, have at it. You want to host your own client? Have at it. You want to do everything by yourself and you don't want to pay us for anything? Great. And by the way, if and when you run into trouble, we offer consulting services. You pay us and we'll fix your problem or build a server for you. That's the right way to do it if you ask me. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Coming up this hour, I want to talk about tech that kills. Tech that kills. Are you guys familiar with the Uber self-driving car that hit a pedestrian in Arizona? Officials saw an opportunity that to jump on Uber because Uber, like other companies, wanted to start competing to get the first driverless car. Incidentally, that came right after a bunch of the Uber drivers were like, we're employees, not contract. And so we want, uh, you know, all these benefits and stuff like that. It's just like, the coincidence is crazy. Right after that, they started testing self-driving cars. What does that tell us? But this is this story is so interesting from a number of perspectives. I spent hours reading through as many detailed reports as I could. I have act, I've watched the video myself, and what we're going to get into all that. And if you have comments, questions. Uh, if you have thoughts on the subject, I invite you to give me a call at 1-855-450-6624. Uh, but the reason that Uber wound up in Arizona was because Arizona promised them, hey, you know what? If you guys want to come test your car here, it's warm all season. It's great all season. Works. It's 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 uh, dry roads. It's great weather. So come check it out. New York Times headline, 
Self-driving Uber car kills pedestrian in Arizona. Arizona officials saw an opportunity with Uber and other companies began to test driverless cars a few decades ago. Promising to keep oversight light, they invited companies to test their robotic vehicles on state roads. And then on Sunday night, an autonomous car operated by Uber and with an emergency backup driver behind the wheel struck and killed a woman on a street in Tempe, Arizona. It was believed to be the first pedestrian is believed to be the first pedestrian death associated with a self-driving technology. The company quickly suspended testing in Tempe as well as Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and Toronto. Okay, I try to keep my personal politics out of this stuff as much as possible, uh, and so I, I, I don't want to get in, in into the politics of it too, too much, but suffice to say this. Do you know why we don't have people that push elevator buttons for elevator operators and lift car operators anymore? Because at some point, they, uh, the hotel industry, the, the uh, mall industry, wherever else we have elevators, just decided it's too expensive to uh, ha- pay somebody to stand here and push buttons. So you can push your own button. And we've seen the same thing happen at fast food restaurants as the uh, political forces have required the wage to climb in various places. The fast food industry has said we're just not going to pay people to take people's money and hand them their order or and, and punch their order into a computer. They can put their own order into their computer. And thus, in Grand Forks, we now have touchscreens at McDonald's. And you touch what you want and swipe your credit card and you do all that yourself. Walmart, same thing. I was having a conversation with my mother. She's very upset. She says, I can't go to Walmart and buy my groceries anymore. I, I have to bag them myself. I have to check myself out. I have to scan them myself. There's one person there and he's usually not very much help. And we have now seen those same forces come to bear in the, in the tech industry, in the car industry. It's becoming too expensive to pay somebody to sit behind a car. And so we're looking to technology. And that's not a bad thing. I like technology. I like things moving. I like technology moving forward. I very much like the idea of being able to sit in my car. Tuesday, I'm going to be driving to Minneapolis a week from now to do our one year anniversary episode. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to uh, the day when I can sit inside of my car and my car will drive me to Minneapolis. I, I like the technology. I think it's a good thing. But let's let's break this down. First of all, this woman was not in a crosswalk. Okay, so I I, I mean thoughts go out, thoughts and prayers go out to her family. I feel very badly for what happened to her. But this is a vehicle that's moving down a street at forty miles an hour, and in pitch black, and this this lady is walking her bike in the middle of the street, not in a crosswalk, not in an intersection, not under a street light. As I'm watching the video, I, I, I'm asking myself how, how, how different this, the outcome of this accident would have been had there been a driver actually driving the car. Because there's a limit to what physics can do. Everyone's saying, well, the self-driving car should have detected that she was there. Within limits or within reasonable limits, yes, if the car is stopped and somebody walks in front of the car, I would expect the car, the car's technology not to go forward. But to say that this woman... Can, to say that anyone can just walk out in the middle of a street in front of a moving object at 40 miles an hour that weighs a couple thousand pounds because it's an SUV. I mean, you know, you're, you're I mean, you start getting an SUV rolling, you're pro- approaching a half a million foot pounds of torque and you want that vehicle to stop somehow or somehow. I, I just I question if it's even physically possible. Now, Uber claims that they have technology inside of those vehicles to actually detect a person, and it doesn't require any specific lighting conditions or anything like that. So we can assume there's some sort of sonar or radar or something that is that is detecting an object in front of them. But obviously it didn't work. And I want to give you the other side of this, too. Cameras are deceptive. And if you have any doubt of that, take your camera, turn one lamp on in your living room, look around and see what details you can pick out in your living room. And then take a picture and see what details show up in the phone. Because the other side of this is a lot of people are looking at the video footage and they're saying, hey, you know what? This is this is ridiculous. Like nobody could see her. Just all of a sudden, just one second she's there and the next frame we've hit her. Like there's no, there's no way having a human, you know, we could have, you know, we could have prevented the accident. But I, I just want to point out the cam, your eyes are w- like 10 times more sensitive to light than even the best camera is. And so the, I, just because you see her, you know, one or two frames into the camera does not necessarily mean that's what the human eye would have detected. 
Second of all, if you look, she has to cross a couple lanes of traffic before she actually gets to the self-driving car. Now, the, the Uber self-driving car, I assume, is not detecting motion that's happening off to the sides because, you know, if somebody's walking on the street with their dogs, obviously you don't want the car to stop. It's just if somebody crosses the path of the car or is about to cross the path of the car, that's when you want the car to react. Well, a human being can look and see that somebody is, you know, they're facing a given direction and they're, she's, you know, her bike is facing a given direction. So she's probably going to walk that direction and she's crossing those two lanes of traffic. And so she's going to wind up in the Uber cars lane. That's something a human can make a decision about. It's not something we can expect to, at least today, as far as I know, we can't really expect a computer to make that decision, particularly not that quickly. You know, second of all, when, when that happens, for the most part, the, the Uber car is told to stay in its lane, I would assume, because you don't want it to hit oncoming traffic or anything like that. But there are times to violate every rule. And so when it detects, when a human sees a, another human in front of the vehicle, if there's nothing in the other lane, assuming there's not a semi or something like that, a human is going to swerve, maybe flip the bird, honk the horn, swear, whatever. But they're going to try to avoid hitting this, this other human. And that, that didn't happen here. And so I just, and then the other thing is too, is on the video, if you look like this driver, she looks like she's half asleep. I mean, seriously, she looks like she's half asleep uh, or, or he, I guess I wasn't quite sure what, what the safety driver was, but, but it's, it's, it's just silly. Like the, the, the safety driver is practically on top of this lady before any sort of braking attempt is made. So I don't really know what the point of having a safety driver is. If that's, if that's what you're going to do is a Volvo, XC9 XC90 SUV. So it's it's a bigger vehicle. Big enough anyway that I question how different the results would have been if it had been just a person doing it. But I don't know. You give me your thoughts. 1855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Scott is calling. Hey Scott. Welcome to the or oh sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. I didn't read that correctly. Scott is in Mumble. Hey Scott, welcome to the yes. Ask Noah Show. Hello. Hey, how can we help? Uh, I just had a quick question about uh, KeyPass. I use it for password management, and I use uh, rsync to transfer it between devices, which I feel is you know really secure because it doesn't rely on on cloud or anything like that. But it also requires me to store my database key right next to the database, and Ooh. that doesn't seem like that would really like. What's the point of the key then? Right. No. The so two-factor authentication. So. Sorry, go ahead. So I was just wondering if you had any alternatives uh, to KeyPass that maybe had uh, some way to manage the keys that wasn't, you know, right next to the database. Um. So, and there's, I mean, well, let's start with this. So, I mean, I've got it on my phone, you know? Right, right. I, I guess, so let's start with this, just because this is something that frequently irritates me. Two-factor authentication is based on a very simple security premise. And the security premise is something you have and something you know. And the best example I have of this is the ATM card. Something you have, the actual ATM card, something you know, the pin that goes with the ATM card. One is useless without the other. If you don't have access to the physical card, you can't withdraw money with just the pin. If you don't know the pin, the physical card is useless. And the same principle applies true with the YubiKey. One of the things that I think is very, very frustrating is when people have supposed two-factor authentication and it, the something you have can be duplicated. Okay, so I'll give you an example. The Google Authenticator, or Authy, or whatever they call it, it's an app that I can download multiple times on multiple different phones. If it was a true two-factor authentication thing, I should only be able to download that app one time on one phone and generate one key, and that is the only phone in the entire world that can do that particular two-factor authentication. And if the phone breaks, then the something I have is gone and is no longer able to authenticate. And the reason I, the reason I, I, I use your question as a, as, as a point to grandstand on that is because if I can duplicate the something you have, you don't really have two-factor authentication. You have one-factor authentication and kind of a sort of a step towards a second step because, I, again, I can just take an Android phone and sign into – if I can get your Google account and sign in, then I have access to – whatever. So th well, th that's what's going not only that, but uh, having a password manager sort of takes your passwords and turns it into something you have, and then you, your master password is the only th thing you know. 
Well, so interesting, interesting side topic on that. If you think about it, without two-factor authentication, a password manager is more harm than good. I mean, it really is because if you think, so if you think about this, if I have one, let's say you didn't have the, let's say you didn't use the key file. Let's say your password manager was just, you stored all your passwords in there and you secured it with a master password. Okay. If I'm an attacker and I can guess that one master password, not only do I have access to whatever accounts you used with that one master password, I have a directory listing of every single account where you have the account, the website that you use, the username that you use, and the associated password. You'd be better off having two or three passwords that you can memorize and sharing them between a bunch of different sites. At least in that circumstance, if one password is compromised, I'm at least having to, as an attacker, I'm having to at least guess what the uh, what the account name, what the usernames are, and I also have to guess on where you're using them. With the password manager, that's that stuff is literally handed to me on a silver plate. So I'm really not in favor of those things. L- let me ask you a question. Uh, a few weeks ago, we covered a password manager, and I'm, I uh, is it Bitwigan? Is that the name of it? I can't uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head. But it is an open source. Yeah, I haven't gotten around to trying it yet. Yeah, you should. Uh, let me see here. You should give that a. Uh, let's see here. I, I, I Bitwarden. That's the name of it. I uh, the the nice thing about Bitwarden is it does a lot of the things that um, that uh, KeePass does that I really liked except it does uh, synchronization as well. And so one of the things you can do is you can download a private key and and you can download that on multiple places if you want to, but it it has the ability to tie into true two-factor authentication, things like the YubiKey that, you know, for example, on the phone, you just touch it to the back, on the computer, you plug it in and push the button, or if you have the Nano, you just touch the side of your laptop, whatever, uh, to, to prove that you have the something you have. But... Though that to me, uh, that is the future of password managers. That or the other thing that we have talked about are like the hardware-based password managers, which they don't necessarily sync. Well, they they do synchronize passwords, but the real advantage of the because you still have to have the security key present, so you can sync the password file around, but you can't actually decrypt it without having the physical thing there, uh, the the physical uh, key token. But the advantage to that is. Again, it's a true something you have, something you know, but it has the advantage of having this like backend infrastructure that syncs all your passwords around. So that might be a, that might be a, a thing to look at. That's a multi-pass. multi-pass. Yeah. Um, the thing about those is that um, you know how would you sign in to accounts through your phone because that doesn't have uh, you know a USB port and you'd have to have drivers for it and stuff like that. So with Bitwarden, they have a an actual Android app. And, I meant uh, with like the YubiKey and the oh, uh, physical sure, one. Sure, sure. So with the YubiKey on Android, it's pretty simple. It uses NFC. So when you hold the YubiKey oh, up wow. to the back of the phone, it will actually, if you understand how NFC works, it basically emits a small little radio wave, and it it that radio wave reflects a, a certain way, a very unique way, off of the YubiKey, and that very unique reflection is specific to only that YubiKey, and so it authenticates. Um, so that's how you can do it with the YubiKey. With the multipass, there I believe there is actually a USB on the go adapter you can plug into your phone and you can access it that way. Uh, so both have the ability to use uh, mobile apps, um, but again, it, you know, but again, it's it's one of those things where I, I, the things that I think make two-factor authentication great are some of the same things that also make it. Um, very inconvenient to use sometimes. And that's just, that's kind of a trade-off and I guess you have to live with that. Again, phone lines, one 855 That's one 855 6624 The email, live at com. All right. Uh, well, we'll take one more call here. Uh, Logan is calling from Nebraska. Hey, Logan, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, thanks. I was calling, have you ever worked much with Jitsi? I have. In fact, back in the Linux... Yeah, back in the Linux Action Show days, we actually did the first, uh, the first, and I believe the last couple seasons uh, of the show using Jitsi exclusively. Because okay, I was wanting, I, I was kind of doing some research. I'm, I'm the IT director on a nonprofit board here in the state, and they've been using Google Hangouts for a while, and we're kind of outgrowing the limitations of the free on that. And I'm not a big fan of tie-in, but it's just a low barrier of entry. And I figured with WebRTC that Jitsi uses, that'd be real easy for people to join. But I've been trying to chase that info on 
Um, I was thinking about maybe spinning up a droplet with DigitalOcean, but I'm trying to chase down, you know, minimum hardware specs versus how many clients you can get connected into a conference before I go through a bunch of brain damage. <laughs> I, uh, Do you have any details or know anywhere I can look that up at? I, I haven't had much luck so far. I know that I, the most I've ever hosted is six people, and I know we did that on a two gig, um, two gig of RAM droplet, and we had no problems with it. One thing you might want to check out, have you played with OpenTalk? I have not even heard of that one. No, OpenTalk. Yeah, OpenTalk, OpenTOC. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. the 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 thing about Jitsi is it's really good if you want absolute control over every little function of the video aspect, which is very useful when you're hosting a podcast and you want to specify a video frame uh, bitrate or something like that. But if you're just trying to do actual web conferencing, you want different people to talk and you want automatic speaker selection stuff like that. Uh, check out OpenTalk, and there, you can try it for free. OpenTalk, uh, OpenTalk. I think it's just OpenTalk.com, and um, and I'll, I'll have a link. Maybe it's OpenTalkRTC.com. But check the show notes. I have a link for you, and um, that would be uh, that's how I would do video con- conferencing if I was doing it today. Hey guys, next year is the or, sorry, next week is the one year anniversary of the Ask Noah show next Tuesday, and we're going to be meeting up in Woodbury, Minnesota, at a place called the Tamarack Tap Room. Now, that's going to be Tuesday, April 3rd, so that's one week from today. I am going to get there somewhere between 5 and 5.30. And after I get there, I'm going to spend a little bit of time setting up, and then we'll go on the air right away at 6 p.m., our normal live time. We'll do a normal show. We encourage call-ins. I've had a lot of people tell me, well, you were doing a live show or you are doing it on location, so I didn't want to call in. Don't do that. If, if you have a question... You guys are the content. We want to take your call. So give us a call at 1-855-450-6624 or email us live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to take your calls. But Tuesday, April 3rd, at I'm going to get there at 530. Six will do the show. After the show wraps, if you guys you, come on in, sit down, hang out with the show. We'll have an open mic if anyone wants to talk on air. If not, you can just watch the show live or just hang out and talk amongst yourselves and, and you know, do whatever. At 7, then we're going to have dinner and uh, we'll just be hanging out and uh, getting a good bite to eat. They got burgers. Just kind of a an American restaurant, uh, kind of like a, a burger beer uh, bar and grill kind of place. Really, uh, really pretty good food. I've, I've been there a couple of times. So that's the Tamarack Tap Room in Woodbury, Minnesota. Make sure to check our, keep an eye on our Twitter because things change, especially when it comes to broadcast stuff. I've never broadcasted from the Tamarack Tap Room, obviously. And so if I get there and there's some sort of problem, I may have to duck out at the last minute and run do the show from my car, or from a rental hotel or so. I don't know. So just keep an eye on the Twitter account uh, at Ask Noah Show. And um, that's the easiest way to find out what's going on. Hey guys, did you know this show is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. You can download the show, subscribe to the feed, all at podcast.asknowashow.com. By the way, that is the place to get the most updated show notes. How many times in this episode have I said, I'll put that in the show notes? I got news for you. Those probably won't wind up on the regular JB site because I have to, I, I don't have, well, actually, this might change after today, but at the moment, I don't have access to go back and edit that stuff. So uh, if I add something after the fact, it sometimes doesn't show up in inside of the show notes, but they will show up at podcast.asknoahshow.com. While you're there on the Ask Noah Show dashboard, help us improve the show. If you have an idea on how to make the show better, we want to hear from you at asknoahshow.com slash better. Let us know how you, we can improve the show. And of course, join the ongoing discussion in our Telegram group, telegram.asknoahshow.com. You heard a listener mention earlier in the program. It's a place where the party continues 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And of course, like I said, you can get the latest update on what we're doing here over at the Ask Noah Show, and of course on the network at Ask Noah Show on Twitter, facebook.com slash Ask Noah Show. Um, I think that's pretty much it. I'll have an update on our Linux elimination challenge. We kind of ran out of time, and I don't want to short it because there are some interesting things to talk about and some interesting changes coming up. So we'll have that for you again live from Woodbury, Minnesota next week on the Ask Noah Show. And uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Vox Telsis for providing our phone systems, Ben, our producer, and Sarah, our call screener. We'll hand you off to the Harm Reduction Report, coming up next with Will Beaton on the all-new 88.3 FM.